Hi, everybody, and welcome to Paul Listnick Behind the Curtain. I am my opportunity to step away from the politics and law that I cover on television and come to the world of arts and entertainment and theater, my true passions, as we do it here on the WGN Radio podcast. Very excited about today's show because I have almost the whole cast for Steppenwolf's new incre uh, incredible production of Harold Pinter's No Man's Land. We haven't seen Pinter produced in Chicago probably in about 10 years, at least not at the Steppenwolf. And um, so how fa fabulous that it is back. And let me introduce you to the cast. Um, I've got to start off with one of the co-founders of, of Steppenwolf Theater, uh, because what a, just what an honor it is to have you join us. But Jeff Perry uh, with us, he plays Hearst. You've been in over 40 productions, Seagull and Streamers and The Grapes of Wrath and August Osage County. Your career is absolutely amazing. I'm so glad to see you on stage. And I have a funny feeling, Jeff, this show got picked maybe partly because of you. No, no, all due respect to the other cast members, but I'm guessing that had something to do with it. Yeah, um, individually and with dear ensemble mates like Austin Pendleton, this one re revolved around uh, Austin and I, for myself in London on a family vacation in 1975, Austin seeing the same amazing cast um, headlined by Sir John Gielgud and Sir Ralph Richardson, um, originating the parts of uh, Spooner and Hearst and Austin and I both saw that and it's stayed in our hearts in different profound ways for decades and decades and we proposed it and a few other plays to our, our co-artistic directors Audrey Francis and Glenn Davis and they jumped on it and we found uh, Les Waters willing to come play um, he, this becomes his fourth director. Yeah. This is becomes his fourth play at Steppenwolf in a over 50 year directing career that goes back to the very earliest, uh, Carol Churchill plays at the joint stock theater, um, in London and the Royal court theater in London. And he's an amazing genius. And, um, okay. That's, that's how I got here this time. And that and that that explains it. You mentioned Austin, so I, I we should mention Austin. He was to be in this uh, show, starring uh, with you uh, in the role of Spooner, but for personal reasons, left the show. And Mark Ulrich, I have to tell you, or I don't have to tell you anything, but ordinarily in a situation like that, they'd say, "Well, we're going to have to recast it. Let's go find somebody." You were the understudy for Austin, and as I understand it, there was just no doubt and no question that you um, were the guy to step into this role. I mean, that says a lot uh, about your talents, your skills. Chicago, first of all, you've done a ton of stuff at at uh, Steppenwolf. Uh, I've just got a whole list of, but you've also been at Goodman and, and Northlight and Timeline um, and Rivendale Theater, where you remember the ensemble. So many great Chicago credentials. But what a what what an, what a treat for the audience to have the person who was to be the understudy but step into the lead role and do it big time. Well, it's it, it's been a real honor, and uh, I had the good fortune of uh, watching uh, Austin in rehearsal create a template for the role for four weeks. And so, what you see uh, as Spooner is really the map that he devised. And um, so, I, I was able to, to step in. And, and of course, I can't fill Austin's shoes. He's a very unique uh, uh, character actor, and. Um, very talented man, um, OB winner, you know, drama desk winner, uh, 
Tony Award. He did um, been on Steppenwolf stages, uh, both as an actor and director for decades, and you know, just uh, a luminous career. Um, and was just re- but, was recently uh, here directing as well, and, and I chatted with yeah. him that night on opening night, and what an amazing guy! Yeah, yeah, he's he's just tremendous. So, uh, but um, when he uh, had to step aside, um, uh, I, I was fortunate to to be asked uh, to uh, take it over, and thankfully uh, they had um, the faith in me and the trust in me to to be able to do it, and. The, the other three guys on stage, I, I couldn't have done it without their their support. And uh, they didn't really know me other than from, you know, seeing me around rehearsals and um, sitting up in the balcony watching rehearsals. And so for them to have the, the trust and, and the faith uh, to to just uh, lend their their support to to someone brand new to the stage, they had to adapt to my rhythms my way of um, saying things and doing things, and uh, and they just they just were so uh, capable uh, in their own work that they were able to to adjust on the fly. Well, the, the dynamics and, and the so. connection between cast members, as I said, I was there opening night, so uh, catching it at the very beginning of the run, it's playing until August twentieth, so people have time to go see it. Certainly, at Steppenwolf, Steppenwolf.org for tickets. Um, but this is a four person cast, and joining you, um, Samuel Rukin, who plays the role of Foster. I kind of want to say who Foster is. I'm not quite sure exactly who Foster is. After all, this is Harold Pinter uh, in the show. But uh, this is your Steppenwolf debut, uh, Samuel. Uh, you've been on Broadway in Cerno de Bergerac. You've been in Hamlet and Great Expectations, all these classic roles. Um, I'm so glad you live here now, uh, originally from, from England. But who who exactly is Foster in this play? I don't. I can't figure it out. Yeah, I think it's left as a question. Uh, it's, you know, there's, 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 there's the, the man who owns the house, which is Hearst played by Jeff. And there's a new entity, a new visitor in the house, Spooner played by Mark. And then two other house members appear. Mm-hmm. And the question is left open as to, as to who they are and why they're there and uh, why Hearst wants them there and why they want to be there. And that's about as much as I want to say about their, their place in the household. Okay. Um, But needless to say, it creates a very specific dynamic and uh, alchemy having these four extremely different energies under the same roof. And, and I, I do want to tip tip my hat, as you do, to John Hudson Odom, who plays Briggs. That's the fourth character. He was supposed to be with us, and he got sick yesterday, feeling under the weather. Uh, talked to him earlier today, just not feeling up to it. And so, hey, take a rest. We, we need you to do that. Uh, you've got a show to put on. Otherwise, he would be here. Uh, and also great work at, at Steppenwolf as well. Mr. Black for president, and he's been at, at, at Tony Stone at Goodman, and just just a great actor. So the four of you are magical. So, Jeff, let me come back to you. You know, I, and by the way, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, Pinter expert by any means, although I do have in my hand, I'm in front of a green screen, so it's hard. This is a signed copy of The Homecoming, uh, written by Pinter, so, uh, kind of a treasure. And I think a lot of people think Pinter lived like millions of years ago. He actually, he was, uh, 
<laughs> he was born in 1930. He really just passed away not all that long ago in 2008, a Nobel Prize a winner for literature. And I think a lot of people might be more familiar, certainly non-theater people with his screenplays, French Lieutenants, A Woman and Sleuth, those kind of things. So he's incredibly well-known and accomplished. But Jeff, let me ask you, when you're doing a Pinter play, um, it, it, you don't know what you're in for, right? This is, falls into the category of, of memory play for him. He did a couple of these and Ordinarily, I just come to a lead actor and say, what's the play about? I'm finding it problematic to do that when you talk about Pinter. I almost have to have each of you. We heard Samuel sort of say, that's as far as I can go. I almost want to ask you and we'll ask you and Mark, what is this play about? Because I'm not even sure you'd give the same story. Yeah, I bet. I bet we wouldn't. You know, and that's that's a that's a function of human nature. We've all seen um, in crime stories, if not somehow been involved in numerous real occurrences of eyewitness reports. You and I, the four of us could be on the very same corner. We could be locked, have locked arms. We could watch a fender bender and be asked to describe as much as we can remember about it. And it could have happened 14 seconds ago, simultaneously for each of us. And the poor detective or police would go, I've got four different, uh, I've got four different accounts of the same simple um, accident, you know, that happened 10 feet from all four of these sets of eyes. Um, So there's that about human nature. Pinter is notoriously spare. When he's when he's asked, okay, what does this mean? What does that mean? He says, look, I think here's how I view humanity. Here's how it hits me. I think people are more unknowable than knowable. I think they spend a fair amount of their energy trying to hide from each other. I think Pender's characters spend a fair amount of time, therefore, throwing up smoke screens. And camouflage in order to make the other person um, uh, to, to make the other person vulnerable. Because if I'm less vulnerable and you're more vulnerable, I have power. It's a pathetic power. It's a mean power. Can I bring up Vladimir Putin um, and betray my political allegiances? You know, um, but... But a lot of Pinter's people operate that way. And, um, and then this is about memory. And I don't think there's another Pinter play that makes men in their 60s or 70s the central or lead characters. And I'm just going by the number of lines that the four characters have. Um, but let's call them the lead characters of a four-person play. Um, and so No Man's Land, when I try to describe to friends and family, <laughs> said, today, here's what it means to me. I know I'm still breathing and alive. I feel that I'm stuck, that I'm past my best. And that best can mean a lot of things. Past my best way of living past my best wishes for how I work, 
past my best wishes for how I inter- interact with other human beings. And I don't know how long I'm going to live. And I'm not prone to suicide. Today, that's what No Man's Land, the title, means to me. And I think that is in some ways the central preoccupation of the play. Mark, Sam, does that, yeah, that makes sense. Well, let me, let me go to Mark first for that, um, and to follow up on that question. But part of your answer, Mark, if you, you, I was going to ask, in addition to your version of the plot, who is Spooner? Because I think he's known um, Hearst for many years, or maybe he hasn't known him at all. And I think they've known each other a long time, and they might have just met. And I think maybe everything is made. I have no idea. So but part of your answer, Mark, uh, fill in exactly who is Spooner as you see him, if indeed you have clarity, because as an audience member, I, I don't. That's a good thing, but you, your view, your version. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I, in, in agreement with uh, what Jeff said about uh, uh, Pinter's plays, they're, very often they're about the power in the room, the power dynamics, and that is certainly the case in No Man's Land. The character of Spooner, and I think this is also uh, typical of many of... Uh, uh, Pinter's characters, it's hard to say anything definitive about him or maybe the other characters too in the play uh, w- without applying the word perhaps, you know. Um, he um, pro- probably uh, was uh, born into a privileged family, as was Hearst. I think they started off on um, similar footing with similar backgrounds, similar educations, and uh, maybe uh, Spooner went to Oxford. Maybe he didn't. Right. Um, he, he's a he's a an habitual uh, tale teller. And um, but at some point, their their lives splintered. They diverged. And um, Hearst uh, enjoyed a lot of success as as a writer, as an artist. And uh, for whatever reason. Spooner did not. Perhaps it was lack of talent. Perhaps it was just luck or lack of luck, as as it happens uh, in many professions. Perhaps it was um, being marginalized because of perhaps his sexuality. Uh, we don't know, but um, so he. We do know that he is um, compared to Hearst, down on his luck, a sixty-year-old man who is. Um, uh, shabby, uh, well-spoken, uh, upper class, but uh, not really uh, earning an income for who knows how long, maybe never. Um, Trying to get a job. Uh, yeah, so he's looking for a place to be in the world. And he sees this as a potential opportunity. Um, there are two people in the way who happen to ha- have that job already of being uh, Hearst's um, attendance. Uh, so, uh, so there's a, a power dynamic p- between Spooner and and the other two in the house who help uh, Hearst. So there's that going on. So that's there's yeah there's a lot of lot of question marks uh, that revolved around Spooner and and his relationship to the. To and the I wanted three. to say when when you finish that answer, I want to say or perhaps not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and Samuel, let me come to you as we talk about you and I'll, I'll have you bring in the Briggs character as well, because in some ways you guys operate um, together. But there's always the interesting glances, the interesting looks. It's hard to and I 
I had a debate with somebody. I did not go back to the script to check this, but in terms of who your character is, while it's perhaps several things, is there not a line in there where at one point you refer to yourself as um, the son, uh, as Hearst's son? Did I not hear that? Did I hear that? You did. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. So, um, you know, I read, I just want to um, share something that I read yesterday because um, it applies to this. I was reading... Um, some of uh, um, uh, the Michael Billington biography of, of Pinter. And uh, in one of Pinter's early plays, it went to um, Scarborough and a young Alan, an L- Alan Akebourne was in this play, who obviously became hugely successful and famous. And they were rehearsing this play and um, uh, Akebourne went to Pinter because he was struggling to understand who this character was. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, can you tell me a little bit more about about the background, about where he came from, about what he wants, so that I can understand how to say these words? And again, paraphrasing, but Pinter basically turned around and said, mind your own business and focus on what's there. <laughs> and, and in addition to that, as people have come to see this play, um, leading off what um, the other guys have said, Every single person has had a different idea about what this play means. But I will say that it's a play about survival. And the audience can have their own opinion about what that means for the characters. But certainly, I think it's a play about the power of words. And that what you say can really make the difference about it can be life and death. And I think for these guys, whether what they're saying is true or not, I believe that when they say whatever they say, they believe it to be true in the moment because it matters so much to what happens next. Samuel, can I just follow up on that for just one moment? Yeah. I understand the power of the words, obviously, but what I thought you were going to say when it comes to Pinter, there's the words, but there's the inflection and the pauses. And aren't those just as critical in Pinter's work? And then I'm curious what kind of guidance you got from Les as a director or even from Pinter in the text. Absolutely right. And in the same breath, I think as important as what you say is, what you don't say is also just as powerful. And the pauses and the silences are obviously, you know, one of the famous traits of a Pinter script. And, you know, coming into this rehearsal process, um, um, to speak to your question about how Les was involved, you know, I always thought that there'd be a conversation about um, how to fill the pauses and the silences. And, one of the reasons why I believe Les is such an incredible director is that he guides you in a direction and lets lets it live in whatever way it's going to. And the pauses and the silences inhabited themselves because we were so, um, by the time we actually stood up opposite each other and, or sat opposite each other in this case, and 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 did the play, you know, we we understood what they were thinking in those moments as far as we knew at that point. 
And then we'd be led in a different direction. And then suddenly those silences and pauses would be filled with other things that are happening. But they're very active. The pauses and the silences are very active in a pin to play. And, and I think, you, you know, because you don't necessarily have a definitive idea, like Jeff said, about what everything means, you just have to go full throttle into whatever you think it means today. Yeah. And then, yeah. then the silences yeah. take care of themselves. Yeah, and yeah. Pinter, has, Pinter has written, Pinter has written um, from the beginning of his career, said, look, I think a lot of communication is a rear guard attempt to avoid nakedness, vulnerability, revealing of oneself. The different kinds of pauses and silences are when his humans get frighteningly closer to showing themselves to their underbelly if we put it in animal terms you know and what's beautiful to me about pinner is he was an actor for so long as well so it's not as though in that story you told us samuel when he goes you know shut up and go go find out for yourself you know he he wasn't necessarily speaking as a playwright as an actor he was speaking as well and i think that was so critical i just have this a quick question it's something that is on my mind i want to are any of you do you happen to be friendly with or know david mamet anybody i'm thinking maybe jeff I have followed David's career. Uh, Amy Morton knows him pretty well. A few members of our company do. The only question I, I had never, is... I, and I never had the opportunity to. Yeah. Uh, the only, I just want to ask this very quick question, which is, as I listen to the words and the cadence, whatever, of Pinter, I yeah. just wanted to see if somebody could find out whether or not Mamet, in fact, was influenced by Pinter. Because I, oh, I, I, I have to for sure believe. And you will find drama departments around the country that make a confident assumption and they teach Beckett, Pinter and Mamet um, in classes, you know, together because they, they just believe in that lineage. We know that Samuel Beckett was a mentor hero of Pinter's and you read Mamet's, you read Mamet's work and you just go for American Buffalo and you're there for sure. Right. Uh, Mark, let me ask you the, um, you know, ordinarily, and I had a couple of friends in from the Philippines, and I, I, you know, talk about Steppenwolf and all that. What was ho- so happy they could be there, but of course, part of what I talked about was were Steppenwolf's amazing sets and how things shift. You know, what happens in a Steppenwolf play, like Bug from a couple of seasons ago, and all the magic that happens. And then, what I, of course, what I wasn't thinking about was when you got Pinter. And by the way, the set was beautiful, but when you're doing Pinter, you're really not worried about that. What struck me about this set were two things. First of all. The height of the Steppenwolf, you know, stage. Um, I mean, I guess that's always the height, right? But it just never it hit me like it did that night. And then, secondly, if there's a fifth character in the show, it's that bar. Sure, yeah the the play uh, is, is that that bar is is an important character, as you mentioned, and alcoholism plays a, a key factor in the the fogginess of an unreliability of of the memory of of these characters particularly hurst and you see hurst um throughout the play um over imbibing and then not being able to uh, function um physically so um yeah that's that is a, a a key part of the play and the, as for the set 
uh, I, you know, uh, before I became uh, a part and during tech rehearsals, I was sitting up in the house and watching it. And it's just gorgeous the way it's framed with the psych in the, in in the, in the background and, um, Less referred to the set as a mausoleum, mm. um, which I thought was very apt. You know, just a giant, lonely, empty place for Hearst. It, 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 uh, it, it, he, um, it's, it's, it's part of the reason why he has to get out of the house before the play starts. He meets this stranger in a pub. And or then not. brings him back home, bring or not, and brings him back home, maybe, because he doesn't <laughs> like to drink alone. He hates he hates to be alone. And otherwise, he would be there drinking alone and it, it would be misery. So he brings back a, a very uh, loquacious guy who can, you know, do the entertaining. Um, but, yeah, the set is the, the vastness of it. And it, it's kind of beautiful in a very stark and imposing way but it's also um a great frame for us for to just um to play in you know and it does very open it literally frames the action there's also the the way i when i talk about the the alcohol being a character samuel let me come to this and i need you to answer if john was able to be here with us but there's also one moment when i'm i'm pretty sure it is spooner who says, get me a drink or something like that. And he says, no, not may- maybe that's Hearst, but you can correct me. But the answer is no. And then he goes and gets it. To me, that once again was alcohol, also part of the relationship, the power, that dynamic. Can you, can you give us some insight on that from your colleague John's role in there? Yes. Yeah, so um, the, the answer to that question is to Hearst, uh, a, a very significant moment uh, in the play. Uh yeah, I mean, so the, 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 as much as we don't know about these, these two guys who live in the house with Hearst, we do know that they're enablers and they are there to serve to a degree. And, and John's character, Briggs, really does the heavy lifting. Uh, you know, they talk about having a division of labor, but it's, it's pretty lopsided. <laughs> yeah. Briggs' yeah. uh, favor. So, um uh so Briggs is the is the guy who frequently is collecting the drinks and what we see in the play without giving too much away is that it it on this particular night and day in question it starts to wear on him a little okay well this and then let people decide as they will i'm sort yeah. of curious uh jeff we have just a couple of moments left but yeah. is there any kind of is there a pre-show routine I guess I'll ask all of you this, but I, I mean, I know a lot of people have a pre-show routine, but especially tied to this and the fact that every night you might be experiencing differences in your relationships and all that. Any pre-show routine that you put your mind through or that you physically do before you go on? Um, Sam and I are <laughs> are consistently infantile and silly <laughs> with, with each other. Um, Mark uh, uh, is beyond professional um there's there's wisdom in his approach he just uh, this is seems to me true of my new acquaintance and and friend and mate mark of there's dignity there and that doesn't exist with sam and i um (laughs) 
and a and kind of quiet preparation. You, you uh, left John out of that. I don't know where he's fitting in, but uh, John John has a different kind of quietness. It's it's it smacks a little bit of guys. I don't want to rub it in your face, but you know I'm above you in so many ways. <laughs> that, you know, I guess in talent, in in common sense, a lot of things. And so I'm going to close my door and um, and I'll be and I love you. I'll be pleasant. Um, but I don't really need your tomfoolery right now. <laughs> that, that's what I call, you know, kind of the, the 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 tire tracks of our preparation. Yeah. Mark, any defense on, that, on any of that? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely concur with uh, uh, Sam and, and Jeff being uh able to clown around before the show it's it's uh, there's a lot of improv going on and 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 it's it's they for me it was it was wonderful because they you know i came into the play with uh, just a bag of nerves and um they they keep things light always keep things light before the show just joking around it's hilarious i love it i love their approach and then then it continues on stage i mean they they're both able to uh reach a uh, 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 deep gravity on stage, but there's also a, a playfulness that they bring uh, from off stage onto the stage. Uh, and every night, um, things are they riff off of one another like like jazz musicians. It's really it's it's a beautiful thing to watch. It, it, it's hey, I gotta say, yeah. Paul, can I? Can, I know we probably have to wrap up soon. Yeah. Two things before you, and you'll be the decider of that. But. Um, Ah oh, man, I've 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 never been in a cast. It feels like more game, more ready in their, you know, just in their ability and in their hearts to do to do these parts. And I'm going to lose you in 30 seconds, Jeff. Okay, okay, and okay. Mark is um, the second coming of of a savior. Um, because he, he, he came in in one of the hardest parts in contemporary drama and he's killing it. If the, and one last thing, if any audience has the slightest intrigue of coming more than once, my wife and daughter did that. They love that. I think the, you'd have a different experience every time. It's like a beautiful piece of classical music or jazz. You get different things from yes. it each time. I've got to say Steppenwolf.org for the tickets through August 20th. No Man's Land by Harold Pinter. You guys are fantastic. I had to get that in because we're going to get cut off and I don't want to lose you. I could talk to you for another hour. Believe me, you can see there's so much to talk about. Thank you, gentlemen. Break legs every night. You were fabulous.